people will say in an evangelistic discussion, why didn't God just not give us an option to do evil? Uh, why didn't we have a world in which you didn't have a choice? You had a um, world in which your only choices were righteousness. It seems that God set us up for failure by putting in the garden a tree that wasn't uh, allowed. Why would God give us these options? Now, the very human answer to this, and I say that not as though it's a bad answer, but it is seeing things through a human dimension. We can look at the Trinitarian presentation of God in the Bible, that God is an eternal fellowship, and there's something about the dynamic of devotion between the persons of the Godhead that would allow us to recognize the value that there is in something that we would define in Scripture as love, that we would label as love, the kind of devotion and commitment that the Father has to the Son, that the Son has to the Spirit, that the Spirit has to the Father, these inner Trinitarian relationships that God then creates human beings that are not rocks and trees, they're not uh, drops of water, they're thinking beings, sentient beings, and that's part of the problem is we feel pain, but that we are existing or existing in the capacity, with a capacity to choose to be devoted, choose to love, choose to be loyal. And that is a human way to look at it, but it's not a bad way to look at it because it is our human experience. The option is a characteristic, a foundational characteristic of humanity, a humanity that we enjoy. We don't want a pole doll that we pull the string on the back and it says, I'm devoted to you, or I care for you, or I love you. Uh, we expect there to be an option when a real human being loves us and we value and cherish that love and that there's lots of options the person could make, lots of friends that they could choose. So. We recognize that no evil as an option would seem like there would be um, something less than humanity. We would have something less than what we have in terms of the value and the dignity and the worth and the, even the enjoyment, the intrinsic good of love and devotion and relationship. Because if there's not an opportunity for me to turn my back on you, if there's not an opportunity for me to choose otherwise, uh, then certainly we have something less than what we would hope to experience even in our fallen horizontal relationships with one another. So I'm not sure that that is a, a great option. You could say, well, then there could be a coercion of some kind. And you can say that on various levels. That's a strong word, but I'll use that word because that's what it will come down to no matter how you guide the ball that's about to roll off the table and you redirect it and you say, well, I'm going to make sure that you don't make that decision. I'm going to give you a decision, but I just want to allow you to choose the wrong thing here. Um, a lot of overprotective parents function this way in their household. But the reality of people making choices and speaking in human terms, to make free choices and decisions to be loyal and devoted and to love and to choose, these are the kinds of things that, again, would mitigate against the value of any relationship if there were uh, a coercion to do what is right. There is an immediate judgment that would solve the problem of evil. If everyone who's about to commit a moral crime, and I say that from a divine perspective, if someone was going to do anything that was sinful, and once they had made that volitional decision to do so, just like we talk about repentance being something internal, and it expresses itself in actions or words or behaviors or values or priorities, the person who's sinning can make a decision at the moment to reach out their hand and take of the tree that they shouldn't eat, 
or they can decide to commit a crime, they could commit some immoral act, and to have God say, well, I'm not going to allow that in my perfect universe, uh, then we would see God eliminating the reality and existence of evil in the world, but we wouldn't have anyone around, as I like to say, to contemplate the problem of evil in the world because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we would have a continual judgment of those who choose to do wrong, and by that judgment I mean the extraction of those wrong behaviors, those wrong actions, those wrong words, in the perfect world that God made. In other words, to start with the world that God did make, it was a world that was perfect. Why didn't God make a perfect world? Well, he did make a perfect world. That's the insistence of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But in that, he gave an option for evil. He did not coerce right decisions. And he did not immediately judge. That statement, as I often describe it, the day in which you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die, in Genesis chapter 3, is a multi-dimensional penalty, right? When they are making a decision to reach out and take that fruit, in that day they did die. They died at least in terms of what death means, the separation between something and something else or someone and someone else. They hid themselves when God showed up and walked through the garden in the cool of the day, as it's put poetically in Genesis chapter 3. And so we know there was immediate judgment in terms of alienation, but there's not immediate judgment in terms of extraction from the world that God made. They weren't cast into outer darkness away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. So we have an existence of the world that was at one time perfect, now existing with imperfect beings without immediate judgment, and that creates the problem of us standing around and asking, why is all this evil in the world? And again, we're still dealing with the moral evil. We dealt last week a little bit with not just the personal moral evil, but natural evil, which we described, but since we're kind of going back through this from a different perspective here, at least this particular point, uh, we're talking about the extraction of people in God's universe that he did not do. He did not punish them immediately. And I think that's part of what we're going to focus on in a minute, and that is God working something better out of the evil in the world than if he had judged it immediately. Um, the other thing, which we often don't think about, number four, is that we could have God uh, just encase them in their sinful world. If you had God just letting rebels be rebels, and the day they eat of the fruit of the tree, they'll surely die, and if the focus of that, which is most important, is a relational death and separation from their creator, they're out of fellowship with that creator, well, you would have in that scenario a God who has no redemption of those people. They would be existing eternally in a fallen state, in an eternal body, in an eternal garden, in an eternal universe, which is how God initially designed his universe to be. That's how it was presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. So we've got a God who instead decides to say, you're going to now return to the dust of the earth. Your existence in this state is going to go away. The world in which you live is going to be cursed itself, the fabric of the material of this world that you're made of. And you can't go into the garden and eat the tree of the, of, of the tree of life because then you'll live forever. So God then guards the tree, the way to the tree of life and says you can't eat of that. So he does not trap them in an eternal world. So we don't have rebels in an eternal world. And all these things set us up for something that I want to focus on 
for much of our time tonight, and that is what God did that was better through the temporary existence, coexistence with evil, than had he either not given it as an option, coerced what is right, immediately judged it, or allowed rebels to live contained in some hermetically sealed world that he had created. So, I mean, we could go on, I suppose, with proposed alternatives, but those are the ones that I think are the most obvious to think through. And I want to make this point, for what it's worth, it's not a big point to elaborate on, but I want to make a statement, and I want it to be so significant in your memory that you write it down, and that is that the critics don't propose any thoughtful alternatives. When you deal with it on Christian, and he says, well, I don't like the world that God made, and then you need to ask them, well, what world should he have made? And even the philosophers and the critics of Christianity, the anti-theists of our day, the militant atheists, they don't come up with a lot of good alternatives for us. Say, great, you want to be God, let's have you be God for five minutes and tell me what kind of world you create that has even a reflection of the good that you see in the way that human beings are constructed and have a world that shows me what it's like to exist without the evil that you despise. And they don't have very many thoughtful alternatives. I've heard some of the most articulate leading spokespersons of anti-theism today, the atheists of our day, who basically punt on this question and say, well, you know, God is God, he can figure that out, but I just don't like this world. Well, if you don't have a good alternative to it, at least you need to say, maybe there is a good reason for the world being the way that it is. And I would just challenge someone in a discussion with them to come up with a world that doesn't have suffering and evil and still maintain some of the things that we see as important and intrinsic in human beings, like the ability to choose to love, to be devoted, to be in personal relationship with people, not as robots or automatic you know, automatons that are just gonna respond to you the way that you program them to respond. Um, Immediate judgment, again, even that, like a bug light, if people are zapped whenever they have an evil thought, we would certainly have a different world. So what's your alternative? And maybe someone's gonna come up with a thoughtful alternative, but when I hear some of the best, I say the best, at least the most popular anti-Christian spokespersons, they don't seem to have very many good responses. It was good for me to spend now two weeks kind of refreshing my mind and reading some of the latest stuff on this topic. I've yet to hear someone say, well, this is how God should have done it. All they want to say is, I don't want rapists in the world. I don't want congenital birth defects in the world. I don't want all that. Okay, um, tell me what kind of world then you create. And I tried to, I think, cover this. We may have done it quickly last week, but if you do have a world in which the dust of the earth itself is not cursed, uh, you are loading human beings that are fallen in a rebel world with a perfect world to work with. The material world in which they live becomes uh, much more powerful. It's like the imagery that's in the Tower of Babel. Uh, the point of him confusing the languages is that there's a cooperation that will allow them to do a kind of evil that would not be uh, achievable were it not for the fact that they had the ability to do these things. Confusing the language, much like confusing the cells within your body or the weather patterns or the geology in which we walk around on the, you know, the, the, the crust of the earth, all of that 
reminds us of how God has not given a rebellious world an infinitely perfect tool with which to express their sinfulness. So anyway, I think that's worth writing down and remembering that critics rarely have a good or well thought out alternative to the world that they don't like. <laughs>